Hello and welcome to another Oh God What Now emergency schadenfreude cast. I'm Dorian Linsky. I'm here with Alex Andreu. Hello, Dorian. And Naomi Smith. Hi. So on Wednesday afternoon, we gathered to uh, discuss in the main show the likely findings of the Privileges Committee into the wrongdoings of Boris Johnson. And uh, I I think we broadly broadly got that right in the sense that we knew it was going to be very bad news for the big man. Uh, But I don't think we anticipated the brutal kill shot that the actual report was going to deliver and that it would thoroughly end Johnson's parliamentary career in uh, unprecedented disgrace for a British Prime Minister. So we're here to pick over the details. Uh, so let us start. I'm going to ask both of you. Um, the first, Alex, what, um, what surprised you relative to what we were anticipating on, on Wednesday? Um, so there is an, an appendix, almost a mini-report to the report, that includes evidence that's submitted to the report that we haven't seen before. And there is basically a whistleblower um, bit of evidence in there from a a SPAD, uh, and it's worth uh, reading into the record, as it were. Um, I was the position removed, which had the press office, SPAD office, and a vestibule connecting all three rooms. And what he goes on to say that is that Wine Time Fridays were calendar weekly events in our Outlook Diaries started at 4 p.m. During the pandemic, Number 10, despite setting the rules to the country, was slow to enforce any rules in the building. The press office Wine Time Fridays continued throughout. Social distancing was not enforced and mask wearing was not enforced. I I once inquired... uh, the name of the person is removed, whether we should be wearing masks and was told that the science advice was that there was no point. Um, This was all part of a wider culture of not adhering to any rules. Number 10 was like an island oasis of normality. Operational notes were sent out from the security team to be mindful of the cameras outside the door, not to go out in groups and to social distance. It was all a pantomime. Birthday parties, leaving parties and end-of-week gatherings all continued as normal. Those responsible for the leadership of Number 10 failed to keep it a safe space and should have set rules from the start that these gatherings should not continue. I was only It was only more than a year into the pandemic that Number 10 set up a one-way system and desk divider screens. Uh, I mean, I find that just extraordinary, especially the comment that there was guidance going around telling them to be careful when they stepped out in case there are cameras to be wearing their masks and be social distancing but inside the building anything goes um i I think that's that's more explosive than anything we've heard before nemi you were i was asking uh on the main show i was you know based on speculation at the time i was like well do you think he's going to be suspended for 10 days 20 days you know the trigger for a a recall, not that that's relevant to him because he stepped down already, but still symbolic. And it turns out it's a whopping 90 days. And you were saying, you know, that it could be a lot worse than than I thought. Did you did you see 90 minutes and the removal of the members pass? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I did mention on the show that the, the precedent being uh, Burko, um, having had his pass revoked uh, after the committee found... Uh, against him um and it it 
you know, it looks uh, very likely that had Johnson been suspended for the 90 days because he hadn't stepped down, it would have been one of the longest suspensions in parliamentary history. Keith Vaz, of course, got six months after being caught allegedly trying to procure cocaine for rent boys. So um, the, the committee have obviously felt that this was actually, if not on a par, even worse than that. And what Johnson effectively did was to slag off the judge just before the sentencing. I mean, the Politico reporting that the 90-day suspension would have been less severe had Johnson not leaked the report and trained his attacks on the committee's integrity over the past week. And, you know, it's unlikely Johnson cares if it was 10 days or 90 days. He was going to resign if there was any chance of a by-election. And so the longer the suspension, the better, as it allows him to act even more aggrieved and portray the committee as unnecessarily punitive. But increasingly, this does look like the end of Johnson's political career because the hurdles between him and a return to Parliament are now very significant. Now, these two situations are, are very different in terms of, of severity, but it reminded me a little bit of when Jeremy Corbyn made his response to the HRC report into anti-Semitism and claimed that, um, you know, that it had been exaggerated for political purposes. And that was the reason um, that he is currently without the whip. It was his response rather than what was in the report. Now, this seems to be that on a kind of nuclear level that, Johnson's response to the version of the report that he had seen is now inspired a new section in the report and has made his punishment more severe. So Alex Alex made a good point earlier about, you know, reading the detail and this new whistleblower that's come forward. But I would draw the listeners' attention to the footnotes, read those, because what they're saying in the footnotes is that um, Johnson having now turned over his WhatsApp messages to the COVID inquiry, which he refused to do to the Privileges Committee. The Privileges Committee are now saying if things emerge from those WhatsApps that would have been pertinent to the evidence that we needed to conduct our investigation, we might need to revisit this and go even further Uh, in condemning the disgraced former prime minister. I mean, he is the first prime minister to have been found to have deliberately misled the House. I mean, there is no precedent for this until now. And this is going to be this bastard's legacy. And not just misled the House, but then misled the inquiry. Like he just couldn't stop. And And that makes that worse. And indeed, his response to the report, he still cannot stop. There is no sense no, of and admitting it, when he's licked. It's disgusting because it was unanimous. We now know that there was no division amongst them. This is a conservative-led um, or a conservative majority privileges committee. Uh, it was unanimous, and therefore Harriet Harman didn't even need to cast the chair's vote. And Johnson knew that he would have known that he would have known it was unanimous when he got sight of it yet he has still spent the last week trying to discredit her at every opportunity and the committee with it and and you know the escalation of his abuse of the parliamentary rules is is what's dominated the last week and peston said that in appealing to the court of public opinion he has exponentially increased the damage to his reputation within parliament um, it, I think it's highly unlikely anyone's going to want to overturn this in a, in a new parliament. 
And he also attacks Bernard Jenkin, who is a conservative, but a conservative who has a grudge against Johnson, of, of which there are quite a few. So he's sort of, Naomi, are you saying he's focused on Harmon and Jenkin and then just ignored the facts that everybody else on the committee well, agreed? Well, indeed, it was unanimous. Um, they, they are all very, very, very aggrieved that he not only misled the House, he misled them and then went further and tried to condemn them all. Um, you know, th- 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 he is just trying to bring disrepute onto the house when actually he's the one who uh, is the main perpetrator. I mean, it's just, you know, absolutely appalling behavior. Um, But, you know, when we're looking at other Tory reactions, you know, Andrea Jenkins raised her middle finger to the Privileges Committee. She shared something that Brendan Clark-Smith had shared earlier, which was this repurposed graphic from Johnson's non-run for party leadership in October to make it clear that he's backing Boris and will reject the findings. Um, James Dudridge may have revealed a bit more of his private fantasies than he intended when he sarcastically proposed Johnson be locked in the stocks to be pelted with rotten fruit. Um, And not Yet, Sir Michael Fabricant, apparently a newly minted expert on body language, has told the BBC that politics has intruded upon the committee's findings, uh, which, of course, he has yet to actually read, he says. So, yeah, I mean, I think the Tory outrage uh, is, 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 is pretty, pretty strong in defence of him. But um, nonetheless, it is what it is. And hopefully now the chances of him returning to our you know, political system are greatly, greatly reduced. Well, Alex, we talked about this, didn't we? And Ian was was sort of, you know, talking about rumours that Johnson would even try and come back before uh, the next election. We thought that that was that sounded a little hasty, but then we thought, oh, okay, maybe the next election after a defeat. Does this make that literally impossible, or just extremely unlikely? Extremely unlikely, extremely unlikely, I think, because the conversation we were having in the main podcast about how our politics differs from American politics, I think, is relevant here, because effectively what Johnson is trying to do is precisely what Trump is trying to do with his indictments. He's basically trying to use his malfeasance itself to generate political capital, to generate momentum for propelling him to the leadership. That's that's what he's trying to do. He's basically using a unanimous report that sets out, I, I counted eight instances in which he deliberately misled Parliament, plus another 11 in which he misled the committee that was investigating the affair. Um, and he's trying to use that to effectively generate positive political capital, which is what Trump does. I mean, it doesn't seem to be working. I, I just wonder who his uh, who his audience is. That having gone through uh, gone through the experience of finding that his initial you know attack on the report before it was even out had made his punishment worse, and now he's going at it again and it's ridiculous and it's unfair and and it's all that. And I'm just wondering, other than you know Fabricant and Doris and so on, who is this for? Is this is he thinking of his sort of legacy and that somehow some historian is rather you know is going to have to say well Johnson did deny all of this no I think he's setting up the narrative for after the conservative electoral defeat that's what he's doing so his audience are actually 
the members of the Conservative Party, the associations. He's trying to create a situation, and Nadine Dorries in her tweets today has made that quite explicit, where basically local Conservative associations punish MPs for turning on Johnson, deselect them, and basically he takes over the party from the roots upwards. That's what he's trying to do. But I think... For all the reasons we discussed in the main podcast, I think that is extremely unlikely to work in this country because I do suspect that the, the party structures are stronger than the grassroots base, especially for the Conservative Party, which has a very small grassroots base. Public opinion does matter here. It's like his popularity was already, you know, subterranean. In the toilet, yeah. And the idea that the, 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 the public reading this will just go, oh, he seems like he's been very hard done by, is rather fanciful. All of it is extraordinary. It, uh, uh, there was this letter he sent to the committee on the 30th of March uh, in which he said that there have been leaks that suggests he's been calling the committee a witch hunt and a kangaroo court. And he just wanted to write to them to let them absolutely know that it is not him putting out this stuff, that I have the utmost respect for the integrity of the committee and all its members and the work that it is doing. This was on the 30th of March. And the committee does note that his response of the 9th of June uses precisely those two terms, <laughs> witch hunt and kangaroo court, and they find that even that was misleading them. They find that that's enough evidence to find that even that was a contempt, that he was basically feeding lines to the newspapers and then denying to the committee in writing that it was him. He was saying, oh, no, that's not me. I would never use those words. Three months later, he's, he, the statement he puts out uses exactly those words. Um, Justin, while we've been recording, um, we now know the exact wording of the vote that will happen in Parliament next week. So MPs will be given a very straightforward vote on the Partygate report on Monday, which happens to also be Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson's birthday. The wording will be that this House approves the fifth report from the Committee of Privileges. So a straight up approve. Yeah. Or oh, so that's it. So there's not, it's not like a, there's not a, yeah. an additional censure for Johnson. It's just going like this report that's is right. legit. Yeah. Yeah. And not only is Monday on which the vote will be held his birthday, it is also, of course, the third anniversary to the day from the party for which he was fined that kicked all of this off, which was his birthday. And more importantly, it's the day before Trade Unlocked at the NEC in Birmingham. And if listeners want to come along, <laughs> they can sign up at tradeunlocked.co.uk using the code TU23, register free. D delete, delete. <laughs> um, so, I mean, do we expect to see, you know, people, the loyalists, voting against the report just to show how much they love it? I think they'll abstain. Uh, they know their members and their constituents. I mean, I, I just, I, if they've got any sense at all, they'll just abstain. I think there will be a magnificent speech by Nadine Doris on Monday. 
<laughs> I fully, I fully expect and hope for that. Have you uh, seen think, that she's gone for a subject access request? Um, yes, and done and done it wrong. Apparently, and, and, exactly because they all fall outside of the. They, they, they're not. <laughs> they're not bound by that. They don't have to respond. So yeah. So Jacob Rees-Mogg was on Sky News just before we recorded this, and he was asked by Beth Rigby what would have made him happier with a committee, and he said if it were chaired by a Labour MP that had expressed no public opinion about Johnson. <laughs> so any Labour MP, like a member of the opposition, that has made absolutely no judgment on the leader of the government that they're opposing would have been fined by Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, which is just a ridiculous notion. It, it just exposes how stupid this whole thing is. Well, I heard the fabulous theory that the Tories, uh, instead of trying to block Harmon's uh, appointment, approved it because they knew that that would then enable them to dismiss the report as partisan. So basically, either you, unless it's totally stacked with Johnson loyalists, it's, it's dismissible. To be honest, I don't think there's that much strategic vision to anything that Johnson does. And, you know, even now when we're discussing what's his intended audience, well, he does, and he's a monkey. He just, you know, he flings excrement in the hope that some of it will stick <laughs> and something will turn up tomorrow. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's just kind of trying to salvage a, a position that maybe tomorrow, if the stars align, makes it possible for him to come back into politics and say that this was all a big, um, you know, mistake and a big political um, witch hunt. Well, well Naomi, uh, Johnson is a historian of sorts. Um, he has technically written history books. And he's obviously a great believer in, uh, you know, the great man theory of history, the judgment of history, you know, legacy, reputation, all of that. It's not great now. And we've still got the COVID inquiry to go, which is obviously going to take a very long time to report. But it seems, say, based on this, the whistleblower uh, testimony in the appendix, it seems very unlikely that the COVID inquiry is going to rehabilitate him. <laughs> so... I mean, it seems to me that his reputation can only get worse from here. Worse. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I asked a, a group of non-political friends this morning what their thoughts were and what they would have levelled as a sentence if they'd been on the committee. And they answers ranged from a mild a vasectomy to the thing that perhaps Johnson would fear the most, a sensible haircut. Um, but yes, you're right. I, I can only see his reputation being further sullied as the COVID inquiry issues interim and then final reports. And, you know, I, I would like the final report out before the general election. That's now not going to happen. So those interims need to be um, well publicised. And it's not just him. You know, there were there were many uh, in the government complicit in the terrible handling of the UK's response to the pandemic. So hopefully it won't just be Johnson's. Uh, reputation down the plug hole, but many of them, because they they were all complicit. Yes, and, and that's actually a point worth picking up, because um, what is in the report means that this could spread, actually, to other people. Um, and that, I think, is more important than the Johnson psychodrama. It will be quite hard 
for Sunak, for instance, who worked in the same building, to sustain that he didn't know every Friday, you know, those wine evenings happened, that he didn't know that leaving dues and birthday parties were par for the cause, that he didn't know there were circulars going around saying everything goes in here, but be careful when you step out the door. And I think that is the possibility. There's the possibility of contagion. And I think that's why Sunak will probably go very, very hard behind the scenes, because this will be a free vote, so he won't whip it. But behind the scenes, I think he will be working very hard for the Conservative Party to show as little dissent as possible and really cauterize this wound. It's it is quite strange, isn't it? Because of course people have been talking about the, the you know the current Labour leadership basically trying to bury the previous one, and now for very different reasons. This is exactly what's happening with uh, with the Tories. Mm. Yeah, you know, it, ruthlessness is the <laughs> ruthlessness to the old king is the order of the day. I mean, former leaders who are still on the scene and saying stuff is a problem for every political leader i think that's true so this is the uh i don't know how many um farewell boris johnson episodes that we've had now is it still fun you still got a kick out of it <laughs> i think the you know uh, uh, oh god what now regular marie leconte um said something that did make me smile wryly she said that uh, you know she looks forward to seeing the man who did once lead the country um, wander around Parliament with one of those flimsy visitor passes, which did, <laughs> which did make me smile. Um, it, I think it is, it is a huge humiliation for Johnson, especially considering just the speed at which it happened, and the distance between the heights he hit after mm. that 2019 election and where he is now. He has literally lost everything, except his earning power. You know, publishers <laughs> will still pay him millions to yeah. write nonsense and people will still pay him hundreds of thousands to say nonsense at their events. Um, but but he's a diminished figure. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. You know, but that's the funny thing about ambitious politicians is that is that you can look at them and go, well, financially, you're set for life. You're going to have many opportunities. You've got many boards. You're going to give many windy speeches for phenomenal amounts of money. But unlike us, their whole life's purpose is to become the leader of the country and a great leader of the country who history mm. will remember. So in that sense, uh, even though he's, he's going to do much better than I'm sure any of us... Um, he's a failure. He has failed. He's a has-been. So aim As low, today, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and we've got to enjoy it. We've got to enjoy I mean, it, guys. This is a moment. We've all done our part, is. every listener, you know, each one of us, everyone that's campaigned for opposition parties, everyone that's protested outside Parliament, written to their MPs about it. We've done this. All of us collectively have kept the pressure up on this complete charlatan, lying fraudster of a disgraced former prime minister. And I am thrilled. I am thrilled today and I'm going to enjoy today. And then we have to get on with the job of repairing the grotesque damage he has done to our global reputation, to our relationships with the EU and further afield, the fact that we are a laughing stock of a country in, you know, we talked about it on the podcast yesterday, you know, this is our payback for having laughed so much uh, at Italy, having to suffer Berlusconi, that it's going to take a very, very long time to undo the damage. And, you know, as somebody who counts themselves among the briefed families, 
you know, that, that journey is lifelong. We, you know, we'll never uh, get over the damage that he has done, but we can begin to undo some of it and we will. Well, the report is available uh, online, all over um, Twitter for sure. So something to read during your uh, Wine Time Friday, which is, uh, which is now fully legal, so you can enjoy your wine time guilt-free. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me on this special uh, emergency episode. Naomi Smith. Thank you very much. And Alexandre. Truly, it was my pleasure today. Yes. <laughs> Um, thank you for listening and we will be back with the uh, regular show next Tuesday. <laughs>